vi chiedo come fratello I ask you as a brother, rimanete nella pace stay in peace. lo chiedo col cuore I'm asking you with my heart. South Sudan is the youngest country in the world. After years of conflict, it acquired its independence from Sudan in July 2011. However, two years after that, tensions between different political factions ignited an ongoing civil war. The main actors in this conflict are the current president, Salva Kiir, and the main opposition group leader, Rick Machar, representative of the South Sudan Opposition Movements Alliance. Atrocities against civilians have been committed by both sides, resulting in death and displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. After two failed attempts in 2013 and 2016, a new peace agreement is currently in motion this time with great influence from the Catholic Church. Last year, Pope Francis invited all the leaders involved in the conflict to a spiritual retreat in the Vatican. The audio you just heard is from Pope Francis himself begging them for peace. In a remarkable moment, the Pope claims that his guardian angel spoke to him and encouraged him to take to his knees, beg and plead for peace, and kiss their feet as a gesture of the importance of this moment. The plea seems to have echoed. Earlier this year, in January, a peace agreement was signed in a meeting facilitated by the community of Sant'Egidio, a Catholic community that has as one of its focuses the promotion of dialogue as a way to peace, cooperation, and conflict resolution. In February, Rick Mishar, the opposition leader, was nominated vice president in what is now a transitional government. The journey towards peace may have been long and difficult, but we are finally here. Yet much needs to happen for peace to thrive. The South Sudan peace agreement raises the following question. What is the role of religious third parties in international and national conflicts? Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. This show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hello, welcome. I'm Peter Coleman, your host for this episode. Today we will be talking to my colleague and friend Andrea Bartoli, who is an international conflict resolution expert who has experience in key academic and diplomatic positions for more than two, three decades at this point. Andrea is currently president of the Community of San Egidio's Foundation 
for Peace and Dialogue, where he's been active since 1992. And in this role, he has been involved directly in many successful diplomatic activities. He has also served in numerous peacemaking processes, including in Mozambique, Guatemala, Algeria, Kosovo, Burundi, Democratic Republic of Congo, Casamance, and is currently working on South Sudan, uh, which we'll speak about today. So welcome, Andrea. Nice to be here. Thank you, Peter. I must also say, as an introduction, Andrea and I have been colleagues. We met at Columbia about 1996 or 7, um, and have worked together on multiple publications and books, and Andrea is a, is a grounded, uh, really world-class peacemaker. I'm an academic, more sort of purely, and we've been in conversation for decades now trying to make sense of peacemaking and bring the value of science to the study of peace and peacemaking. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you back here. Delighted to be here, and indeed, we have been working together for a long time. It is a pleasure to be back. It's a feeling of coming home and engaging in a conversation that I feel is very important. Yes, very good. So um, the case we'll focus on is the South Sudan peace process, um, but it raises a variety of questions. Um, and so I thought we would maybe just start more generally, uh, if, if I can ask you to describe the, the work of the community of San Egidio and its, its conflict resolution, peacebuilding work in particular? So the community of San Egidio is a spiritual family, is a group of friends who are trying to live the gospel. So it's um, spiritual in its nature, spiritual in its uh, upbringing, was started by a young man who was 18 when he started it in 1968 gathered a few friends, read the gospel, and practiced the gospel. The idea is very simply that Jesus' words are powerful enough and living enough to invite a fundamental conversion of life. Mm. Sant'Egidio stumbled into his own name. At the beginning, it was just the community or the community of the gospel for the first five years. And then it was given a church in the heart of Rome called Sant'Egidio. So we became the community of Sant'Egidio just serendipitously or by grace, you know, depending on your worldview and your, sure. your point of reference. And um, similarly, just a few months later, a few years later, uh, we encounter a young priest who was fundamentally exiled in Rome. He was studying, but he was a black nationalist native Mozambicans from Beira. And um, he was studying in Rome as a way for the colonial Portuguese authorities to keep him out of the country because he was uh, considered to be a troublemaker. Mm. When in 1975, the Portuguese experienced a military coup that ends abruptly the colonial wars, this priest uh, is allowed to go back to his country with a very different profile because the Vatican decided to apply a post-Vatican II policy and make him the bishop of Beira. So this poor exile priest that befriended this little community of friends, that were all, we were all very young and so on, became Archbishop of Beira, stays in Beira in, in Mozambique for a couple of years, and um, comes back to Rome for the visit at Limina. The, the Catholic Church is a, is a very large organization, billions of people, and yet 
uh, is very personal. So every bishop must come to see the Pope personally every five years, and it's called Visita ad limina, ad limina apostolorum. Uh, Jaime Gonzalez comes back to Rome and uh, uh, meets the Pope for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, very quickly, and then he's in Rome. And so he visited Sant'Egidio again. And when he's visiting us uh, during the prayer, he, he opens um, his heart to us, to the community, explaining that he could not celebrate Mass, he could not visit the communities, he was controlled by the police. The Mozambique at that point was a Marxist-Leninist uh, uh, condition, and he was very constrained in its capacity to do uh, pastoral work. So the community responded to this plea by intervening in Mozambique on his side, helping the church to gain some degree, some modicum of space to be the church. Can I ask though, at this point, um, the community is in Mozambique doing other types of work, right? No, not yet. No, not yet. We okay. have no connection to Mozambique whatsoever. Okay. The only connection is through Jaime Gonzalez, this okay. priest be that became archbishop. Yeah. And it's through him that we start sending food, sending medicine, sending uh, delegations, and so on and so forth. Mm. But at the same time, helping him to connect with Italian politicians that could help um, switch the government to open up in terms of religious freedom, not mm -hmm. just for Catholics, but for everybody, um, explaining that in a way it is good for the state to have an open participation of civil society, including religious groups. Sure. Um, Catholics were not uh, well received at that time because they were too close, well, they were perceived to be too close to the former colonial power. Yep. And so the poor archbishop had the difficulties and Sant'Egidio started helping. And for 10 years, this is what Sant'Egidio did. We were present in, 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 in Mozambique at that point through communities that were Mozambicans, Mozambicans, young Mozambicans that became members of the community and started serving the poor, doing the prayer and so on. But the focus was very, very much religious freedom. Uh -huh. While we were doing this, a significant civil war broke up in Mozambique. Renamo, uh, the Resistenza Nacional Mozambicana, counter the government led by Frelimo, the Frente Nacional de Liberação de, de Mozambique, it, this civil war became increasingly bloody and violent and difficulties and so on. At the end of it, 16 years later, um, a million people died, uh, five million uh, refugees or internally displaced people, a very, very significant uh, human suffering, human toll. And Sant'Egidio was asked, with this archbishop and an Italian uh, parliamentarian, to lead the mediation effort. Um, so Sant'Egidio, in a way, stumbled into peace work mm. uh, through faithfulness to one person. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, this is a very important element for us, because Sant'Egidio is not technically a think tank or an NGO or a UN body that does conflict resolution professionally. Um, Sant'Egidio is not paid to do these kind of services. Sant'Egidio maintains a very high level of independence from all the actors, has developed a series of practices that are uh, highly unusual. 
Mm. And this is why I'm delighted to speak with you about this, because mm. I really think that the Sant'Egidio case is uh, original in his own um, expression. Origin. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that happened after Mozambique is that uh, uh, the successful conclusion of this terrible civil war became uh, well known, especially, especially in African circles. Mm. And um, a lot of people from John Garang of Sudan, Sudan to Turabi, actually from, from, the, from the northern side, mm -hmm. from Nelson Mandela to um, Nyerere, started developing contact with us. Uh -huh. Many of them just visited Sant'Egidio. Uh, Nyerere describes Sant'Egidio as a house of peace for Africa. Mm. Why? Because Sant'Egidio offered very confidential services to anybody who wanted to consider peaceful options to ongoing conflict. And I think that a lot of people considering peace activists yeah. have a misconception of how dangerous peace is. Uh -huh. uh, if you are in a violent conflict, to speak about peace, even just to speak about the possibility of peace, is an extremely dangerous proposition because you can be perceived as a traitor sure. and you can be labeled as such. And in highly politically contentious environments, um, uh, labels of that kind can, re can be easily a death threat, you know, can really be a, a, an assured possibility of being killed and, and so on and so forth. So Santegio realized fairly soon that people really required special conditions to even start thinking about peace and to speak about it, to, to utter mm -hmm. the words that this opposition figure, this movement, this enemy could actually be engaged in a way that is constructive, peaceful, and so on and so forth. Sure. So for us, confidentiality has been very important since the very mm -hmm. beginning, and one-to-one uh, -one conversation has been extremely important for us. Mm -hmm. um, most of the time, this conversation happens in Sant'Egidio, in Sant'Egidio headquarters, mm -hmm. sometimes around the world where we meet people and where occasions you know, bring us and so on. Mm -hmm. The most striking of this occur in Morocco, um, just a few years after the successful conclusion of the peace process in Mozambique, when a young Muslim theologian said, you did Mozambique, why don't you do Algeria? But Algeria at that point was in a very difficult situation. There was a, a violent military confrontation between the army and the Islamists, and uh, there was a major um, democratically-led nonviolent peace to this moment, both mm -hmm. uh, socialist and nationalist. But the main thrust was this, this violent confrontation. And uh, the effort was to create a platform that could bring together the three main uh, thread of mm -hmm. Algerian politics, the um, nationalist one, the, the socialist one, and the Islamist one. Mm -hmm. And because the invitation came from this person, um, everyone came to Rome. And you have this incredible miracle of uh, more than 80% of the Algerian population represented in those talks uh, through the different political parties that, uh, that uh, were represented in the election. And um, they were able to have an agreement. They were mm. able to reach a platform for the peaceful resolution of the Algerian crisis. That was mm. really a breakthrough. This was in a Catholic convent. Mm -hmm. They were all Muslim. There was yeah. clearly a very interesting yeah. 
um, moment of hope that was created by this um, um, interplay of confidentiality and creativity. Mm -hmm. We really believe that when you are welcome in a space in which you yourself can start imagining things different from the current conditions, uh, completely new vistas, completely new horizon, completely new options can emerge, and therefore the role of Sant'Egidio becomes to evaluate them against actual power structures, yeah. actual um, uh, counter arguments, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So Sant'Egidio developed its uh, um, way of doing things really in the midst of actual processes. It was not a theory. Sure. Uh, then applied, but it was a practice that became refined over the years. Yeah. And now, <clears throat> 40 years after the first encounters, the 40 years after the first uh, experiences, um, Sant'Egidio is clearly on the cap cusp of, of a very interesting moment because to a certain extent we understand better mm. What makes the what makes peace possible? Yeah. We understand better what Sant'Egidio can add to this um, process, sure. and what are the dangers and what are the threats that you have as you proceed. So through these experiences over these forty years, it sounds like you've begin begun to identify what I would call principles, sort of basic principles that you discovered uh, through your practice. Have you? articulated those principles as there you know is there a set of these are the sort of five fundamental things we need to do in order or is it much more idiosyncratic it depends on so there are some guidelines some some fundamental principle as you said and one was expressed by pope john paul john the uh, 23rd uh, saying seek what unites and not what divides uh -huh. and this was very interesting because it was used in the first joint communique of uh, Frimo and Renamo, already in 1990, July 1990, this, uh, this expression is part of the joint communique uh -huh. and uh, <clears throat> continues to be <clears throat> at, the, at the core of Sant'Egidio's commitment. Uh -huh. The interesting follow-up is that um, this invitation to seek what unites must be tempered in a way by the realization that many actions are not only what they are intended to be, but they are actually read by a series of actors. So sure. the gesture of um, welcoming somebody can be perceived as very threatening and provocative by someone else, manipulative right. and, yeah. and so on and so forth. And we have no control over the capacity to intervene in somebody else's perception of what we are doing and sure. so on and so forth. So Sant'Egidio has developed a very, very strong commitment to inclusivity. Mm. So it is not just a question of um, in an individual conversation to seek what unites, but also practice the um, we would say in uh, in complexity theory, you know, the 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 the, the mapping, uh, the network, the, the system mm -hmm. mapping. You know, mm -hmm. who is who is present in the system, who right. is who is participating in the system, 
because whoever is participating in the system in any capacity, in any role, must yeah. be connected to, must be <laughs> included into, must be in conversation with. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the unite, seek what unites and not what divides is not only a sort of a, a psychological preference mm -hmm. or a disposition to listen, mm -hmm. um, but it's also a very practical discipline of literally doing your homework and saying, who, who is who? Who, yeah. who, is, who has this? So you have at least three elements. You know, one is this uh, uh, um, disposition of the intervener. You know, Sant'Egidio's tries to tries to seek what unites rather than what divides. Yeah. Sant'Egidio is in a listening mode, is in a receiving mode, mm -hmm. and remains in a listening mode and in a receiving mode all the time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because seeking uh, is interpreted as receiving. Mm -hmm. Seeking is uh, perceived as gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, it mm -hmm. is really almost this, this, uh, this uh, welcoming attitude of uh, receiving whatever life is sending. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm rather than these, you know, more active. Uh, sure. So uh, you're trying to discover and identify potential or possibilities for unity as opposed to impose the kind of structures that, you know, would force people to cooperate and maybe that is not what they want. Exactly. I would say that Sant'Egidio's attitude, exactly because of this uh, uh, discipline of seeking what unites, right. it comes from the assumption that Peace is already in the person that is speaking, uh -huh. and that what needs to happen is an articulation of that peace that can be considered possible by that person. Sure, sure. So the listening mode is a fundamental component of this, because mm -hmm. um, in a way the assumption is that peace is always possible, right? and that peace is always actually trying to to manifest to, itself, right. exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, so we, we conceptualize peace as alive mm -hmm. and, uh, and always trying to be. Yeah. So for us, peace is a, is, a, is a spiritual reality, is a human reality, is a cultural reality that before being a political reality, before being a military reality, yeah. it needs to be verbalized through the expression of somebody who is having the legitimacy to do so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is able to say, peace for me today means X. Right. So once you have this, um, um, this position of, of Sant'Egidio, right. this listening mode, right. this third element of seeking what unites is really this commitment to inclusivity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a super interesting process because we don't believe in uh, bureaucratic structures. Mm -hmm. We are totally in agreement with uh, George Mitchell, who said, you know, when I was doing the uh, Good Friday Agreement, I never had everybody in the same room at the same time. Right. But I was speaking with everyone. Right. So in that sense, uh, system theory is super interesting because, of course, you can have a system that is perfectly capable of having all the pieces together, right. even though individual elements may not be directly connected. Right. So Sant'Egidio ends up at the service of the emergence of a mm -hmm. system of communication in which everybody is communicating with everybody else, uh -huh. but not necessarily everybody is in direct physically contact in space, right. exactly, or physically together. Right. So these three elements 
articulate this um, this disposition to seek what unites. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think that is that is very very important. This this notion that to a certain extent um, the um, that that this 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 peace this peace uh, trying to emerge uh -huh. is actually what unites that that there is a coincidence between the peace that is trying to emerge right. and this reality this dimension mm -hmm. that is uniting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So peace for us is not an outcome. It's not a piece of. It's not a document. It's not a declaration. It's not a contract. It's not a statement. It's not a. Not a thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's actually a dynamism, uh -huh. and that um, this comes obviously from an anthropology, from an understanding of the human person. We believe that human person are supposed to live in peace, and sure. that uh, peacefulness is actually much more natural to us than non-peacefulness. And sure. in that sense, you're very pleased with your research yeah. on uh, peaceful society because we know that humans are perfectly capable of living peacefully and yeah. uh, this is usually our preference is right. that uh, what many people would prefer even in the most daring circumstances sure so Sant'Egidio is very interesting because um, he's still um, very active and very much seeking what unites mm -hmm. And what we realize all around us is that uh, we are all collectively experiencing a time of extraordinary upheaval and transformation and that... Uh, um, and division. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and in many cases, you know, violent one and destructive one and, uh, yeah. and very deadly one. So this commitment to peace became a much more relevant... Um, uh, dimension for the community uh -huh. and when we met uh, Pope Francis uh, who visited the community several times he said you know Sant'Egidio is prayer poor and peace wow. and it's a very That's beautiful, beautiful yeah. way of bringing Sant'Egidio together because it sure. is true that we pray we serve the poor and we at this point you know, we are really made making this work for peace a much more central part of our project fantastic it's such a beautiful summary right um, I wanted to ask you just quickly, I, we have other questions that we'll go to, but you shared with me at some point, um, Andrea would visit my, cla my classes at Columbia and give lectures, and at some point you talked about a, a strategy or a tactic um, that, that the community has used, uh, I, I assume intentionally through the years, of basically reaching out unilaterally to some of the most vilified members of the international community, the Janjaweed or bin Laden, um, and attempting to make contact because you felt you could and because you felt that it, it, could, it, it offered the potential of, as you say, identifying, discovering some possibility of existing peace or some possibility of, of, of a different strategy. Um, is that something that the community is still practices? Um, because it does strike me that one of the, some of the power of, of the effects of the community is that you've been invited. People, local people will say to you, come in and work with us and help us. But, it, but it, in addition to that, it does seem like you try to make contact with these more vilified militant groups um, is, so is that, the, I guess the question is, is that practice still 
part of what Senegidio does, and do you see that as different from sort of being invited in? So, uh, <clears throat> indeed, I can confirm that uh, that uh, that strategy, but with with a little caveat or with a little twist okay. that is relational uh, uh, in in in, uh, in nature. That is to say, we did uh, develop uh, extraordinary contact with uh, people that a lot of um, um, people in the West or in in established circle would consider very unsavory characters, you know, right. that you, you do not speak with and you would not en engage with and so on and so forth. And, um, but this has been always the expression of a relational opportunity. Um, so we were involved, for example, with the LRA, you know, with Connie. Mm -hmm. Because um, people in Uganda, because actually people Mm -hmm. uh, told us, why don't you go and speak with, uh, sure. <laughs> with uh, um, Kony? Um, we, we did have contact um, in, in very extreme uh, groups. Um, but, but again, always because somebody was um, encouraging, opening doors. Uh, doing somebody so. from within the communities. Or, or part of the network of this la very large uh, uh, I I network that I was describing before. You know, yeah. there, there is um, once you start this commitment to inclusivity, yeah. you end up encountering all sorts of people, and um, people start looking at you as the possibility of a conversation that would not happen otherwise. Yeah. So, in that sense, we felt all along that um, um, there was a duty. <clears throat> for us to provide that space so that anybody mm -hmm. could consider peaceful options. Mm -hmm. That we were not, of course, condoning human rights abuses. We were not condoning violence. We were not condoning war. We were not condoning you know, the terrible things that many of these people were accused of. Sure. But that everybody had to have the opportunity of considering a different path. Everybody had to have the opportunity of Right. changing and then considering other things and so on. So we do continue sure. that practice. And what I find fascinating is that now, Santegidio now um, is a much larger moment around the world. When mm -hmm. I joined the community, we were 25, 30 kids. Mm -hmm. um, and that was 50 years ago, <laughs> so long ago. When did uh, you, what, what year did you join? Do you remember? I joined in 1970. 70, right. So two years after the community started, sure. we were literally 25 kids, 30 kids. Sure. Um, all coming from high schools and university. Now we are 250,000 around the world. We are present, you know, there are more Sant'Egidio in China than in the U.S., more in oh. Cuba than in the U.S. You know, it's, it's, it's a remarkable moment. Sure. But what I found extremely interesting is that, for example, our friends um, in Nigeria are reaching out to people of Boko Haram. Mm. So this is not something that is happening in Rome only. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is happening at the gra grassroots level. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's happening in, in, in Ivory Coast. You know, it's happening in Burkina Faso. You know, and uh, and people uh, develop this notion that if you are of Sant'Egidio, you must be a peacemaker. Mm. You must be open to the possibility that you can play a role mm -hmm. in making peace possible, mm -hmm. allowing peace to emerge, allowing peace to be. Mm. And it takes a little 
guts. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you are in a community that is ravaged by violence, to yeah. say, I want to talk with that person. Sure. I am ready to talk with that person. I am right. ready to listen to that person. Right. I want to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Sure. And there have been consequences for members of the community. Totally, right? totally. There, we, have, we, ha we have actually had people kill yeah. uh, in Mozambique first, and uh, even recently, because the community is now present in so many places, actually is becoming more common, unfortunately. Uh -huh. We had uh, recently um, people killed in northern Mozambique. Uh -huh. uh, we had people killed in Malawi, people killed in Pakistan. and um, You faced some challenges in Syria. Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Very. So let's talk about that for a second, just to talk about the dilemmas or the trade-offs of, first of all, you have this, you know, what was 40, 50 years ago, a, a nascent movement that found its way into peace and was quite effective in that and now has sort of scaled up and therefore is more recognized as a, as a peaceful actor and probably because of that, puts some of the peacemakers at risk, right? Some of the community much more at risk than they would have been had they not been in the peace game, right? Um, so that is one of the potential unintended consequences of the success of the community's work in peace. Yeah, and this is why <clears throat> we never, we never force anybody to do this work unless they feel that they are called and compelled to do so. Sure. We are very often surprised by the initiative that um, peace is inviting us to do. Sure. Um, but there are many paradoxes, and I feel that the role that the uh, older member of the community or the community in Rome, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of secretariat, the, this uh, peace team that is following the most important one, has to do is exactly to. Um, to, to, to ponder, to measure mm -hmm. the complexities of this action. Mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm. Santegidio is certainly not a happy-go-lucky kind of place we'll where everybody is, is, is thinking <laughs> that uh, just because you want peace, peace will happen. Right. You know, it's actually a very, very uh, prudent, realist, uh, uh -huh. uh, careful machine uh -huh. that doesn't encourage Mm -hmm. uh, it welcomes a lot, mm -hmm. acts very little, and when he acts, he act, tries to be result-oriented, uh -huh. exactly. Um, yeah. But this is an important distinction because I really feel that, um, one, you don't want to put people at risk, and uh, there is no, no, no reason for that. Two, any violent act actually has significant consequences in making peace more complicated, more sure. difficult. It's not that you have any advantage. So it's, it's, it's always better to actually um, uh, remove yourself from a dangerous situation. It's better not to be peacefully provocative. It's good to be prudent. So the community is fundamentally a, a religious community, right? Based it's in, in Roman Catholic theology. And, and um, are there downsides to that in the work you do? Has there been either reactions to a religious organization being involved? I was certainly in Mozambique, that was part of the challenge because of the legacy of Portuguese colonialism and their connection to the church. Uh, but have you experienced that elsewhere as a, as a challenge or an obstacle in your piecework? Well, it is certainly 
easy for people that um, associate religious group with uh, bigotry and intolerance right. and right. so on to be um, uneasy with Sant'Egidio. Uh -huh. But generally speaking, Sant'Egidio's open identity as a spiritual family is a plus because one, we are a spiritual family, but we are also post-Vatican II, we are lay people, we are very secular, we are very open. Right. We are definitely not a um, close, bigger... Formal branch of the church. Well, we are in a sense that we are recognized as a, as a, a publicly association of the church, but yeah. we are not... Um, 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 confrontational as attitude and mm -hmm. exclusivist as attitude. So uh -huh. um, we have wonderful relationship with non-believers, with mm -hmm. secular lay people. Mm -hmm. We do believe that uh, um, laicite, you know, secularity, the, the mm -hmm. it's, it's a very important construct that cost thousands of years of wars and complications sure. and that actually it's very important for us to preserve. Sure the secular space um, at the political level, at the moment in which we are thinking uh, humanity as a whole. Yeah. So it's a very interesting conversation on how we believe that actually those distinctions uh, were um, expression of a certain cultural milieu that was Christian mm -hmm. and allowed for this distinction between church and state that um, is giving us the US and Europe and mm -hmm. many forms of government that carefully distinguish between religious freedom and uh, the capacity of religion to overrule uh, sure. the government sure. and the, the control of the of the state. Yeah. So Sant'Egidio is, is very interesting in that sense. Uh, it's very respectful sure. of, of these um, distinctions and spaces. Yeah. So generally, Sant'Egidio's spiritual identity has been helpful because uh, one, you know, simply demographically, the largest majority of humans are believers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so to know that I know who you are yeah. makes the conversation easier. Sure. Uh, the case of Algeria was uh, very, very clear. But in many situations of the world, we, we collaborate very well with believers of other religions. Sure. And this has been even clearer after the 1986 uh, um, International Prayer for Peace that John Paul II started in Assisi. Sant'Egidio was behind that first moment and right. continued to do that prayer for peace every year, mm -hmm. ever since, um, all in European cities. But we will do the presentation at the UN for the first time. And that's a multi-denominational Exactly, here, right? exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you have... Um, Christian, Jews, Muslims, Sikh, Hindu, Buddhist, everybody coming together. Uh -huh. And for Catholics, that was completely new. It was, it was a complete transformation of a worldview. Sure. And um, we believe that is part of the world that is coming. And, uh -huh. uh, and interestingly enough, that prayer was before the peace in Mozambique, was before the peace in Algeria, was mm. before our commitment in Bosnia and Guatemala and so on and so forth. So for us, the connection between prayer and work sure. is actually very intense. It's, right. ve it's very strong. Just to say that being religious in itself is not, an, is, is not hindering us. Uh -huh. um, it's a responsibility. Uh -huh. So is, um, is, 
one way of looking at this is, is similar to say, um, is the responsibility of speaking a language, is the responsibility of having an identity, mm -hmm. is the responsibility of being somebody who has something to say. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, you exist in the world as a reality that can welcome words, concerns, and so on, sure. and respond to that. Uh -huh. And what I think is extremely interesting about Sant'Egidio is that Sant'Egidio is positioning itself more as a global receptor of human sorrow. Mm. The, the general attitude of Sant'Egidio is, uh, is really the attitude of, for those who are familiar with scripture, uh, the Good Samaritan. This human person that encounters suffering is not afraid of suffering, mm -hmm. takes on the suffering and respond to the suffering with whatever creative capacity mm. this person has. Mm -hmm. So we believe that peace is fundamentally a human responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so the community sees itself individually and collectively mm -hmm. as performing that role. Mm -hmm. And we feel that um, co collectively, culturally, um, we are listening to the poor less and less. Mm -hmm. That one of the form of the inequality is the inequality of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, there are no more large uh, movements speaking for the poor. Mm -hmm. There are no leaders speaking for the poor. Pope Francis is one of the, of the exceptions. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, there is a, a, a run for the powerful and the rich yeah. to be always more powerful and always sure. more rich, and more and more far away from the cry of the poor, from the concern of the poor, for the, mm -hmm. from the pain of the poor. Mm -hmm. So the, the community is positioning itself everywhere around the world as a, as a welcoming space where you simply listen. Sure. So in New York City, we have a service with the homeless. Right. And what we do every Tuesday, if you come to Grand Central, and uh, you will see people speaking with friends and sure. listening. And yeah. uh, that's what we do. We, yeah. we believe that. If you go in nursing homes, that's what's important to do. You know, sure. if you go to kids, you know, it's important to listen. So the, to really develop this listening side is extremely important for us. Uh, so we need to shift to South Sudan. Can you give us some context to how you got involved in South Sudan and what uh, you know the community has been doing, what, you, what your role is there? So the community of Santegidio, has a long history with South Sudan. It's yeah. that actually with Sudan, when Sudan was an entire country, was right. all together, and John Garang visited Santegidio several times, Turabi visited Santegidio several times, and we have been involved um, in that form of listening, welcoming, exploring, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. So um, we met Rick Masha um, long ago when he was mm -hmm. much younger, and. Um, we definitely go a long way back, but mm -hmm. it was uh, after uh, Pope Francis last year um, had this incredible gesture of um, kissing the feet of the leaders um, that a new opening really materialized. Uh -huh. Sant'Egidio had been in contact with the South Sudan Council of Churches, and we must note that the churches in South Sudan really maintain the possibility of peace open. You know, they mm -hmm. were really the um, holders of 
the dream and possibility of peace in in, uh, in South Sudan, mm-hmm. even when um, you know the the civil war was so violent that nobody could think of a possible peaceful solution. So, sure. Santegio was working uh, with the Council of Churches and uh, helped them to connect with the Vatican and uh, <coughs> led this to this Welby um, Archbishop Welby Anglican Archbishop Canterbury. A suggestion for the Pope to do a, a retreat for the South Sudanese leaders that led to this gathering in the Vatican that was concluded by this incredible moment in which Pope Francis decides to beg for peace. And uh, it's an extraordinary moment because Pope Francis clearly understand that sometimes you need a gesture, sure. you need a moment, you need an occasion and that this um, gap of representation, this, uh, this terrible void mm. of voice where millions and millions of people are deprived of voice because they don't have um, a state in which they can have regular elections, where they can have uh, really a say in the construction of their own states, sure. requires this dramatic expression. Sure. And, um, Sant'Egidio was there with Pope Francis mm. saying, this is beautiful. It's a beautiful invitation. What is the follow-up? So in speaking with President Salvaquier, we suggested to focus on one particular piece of the puzzle that was the possible participation of the opposition movement that did not sign the Addis Ababa Agreement, SOMA. This is a coalition of different forms. but. Mm-hmm. They were fundamentally criticizing the logic of the Addis Ababa agreement and uh, wanted to stay out. But with seven months of careful work, diplomatic work, you know, in engaging, talking, visiting, exploring, and so on, Sant'Egidio was able to organize in November the first meeting with Soma, where Soma uh, made the declaration um, with Thomas Cirillo and the others that they would join the political process. And that mm. led to the meeting in January where Soma and the government met. And because they were meeting, also the signatory opposition came and IGAD came. Mm. So suddenly, in January, the ceasefire was crystallized. And mm-hmm. in February, we have the agreement uh, mm-hmm. for the monitoring and the full participation of Soma into the process. Mm-hmm. That led to this recent agreement for the new government, mm-hmm. which hopefully will lead to Pope Francis going to South Sudan. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine, if mm-hmm. it is true, that Pope Francis is going to go to South Sudan, what kind of possibility will open for peace. Sure. So you need to be very careful because there are many reasons not to believe that peace is possible, that peace is actually coming, that sure. peace is... A, but at the same time, there is a responsibility to keep the momentum as the peace momentum continues to grow. Sure. And I think that this goes to the core of creating political formations that we call states uh-huh. that are truly representative of populations. Mm-hmm. It's just unthinkable and uh, unethical to imagine that states are only looting consortia where people are just dividing up the pie or whatever natural resources are available Mm -hmm. so that uh, the rich can become richer and uh, the poorer become poorer. 
On the contrary, the idea that the state formation can be an occasion for societies that are previously divided by ethnic, language, religious cleavages mm -hmm. uh, could become a unifying project. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in this sense, I think that is actually very interesting what happened in the United States, in Europe, and so on, because Europe has been ravaged by centuries, millennia of wars, mm -hmm. and uh, the relative peacefulness after World War II was, was, was paid with great heavy human cost. Sure. But the idea that political formation can be representative of a society mm -hmm. is now clearly stated. Mm -hmm. uh, the American commitment to agree to disagree mm -hmm. that led to the distinction of powers and mm -hmm. uh, a certain institutional formation mm -hmm. is clearly very interesting for everybody around sure. the world. It's not just an American expression. There is no, no, no necessarily um, um, closure, you know, uh, uh, constraining that. Sure. And Africans are experimenting very interestingly on what a nation state is and how it relates to the continent as a whole and how power can be distributed and what is the role of um, traditional groups and uh, mm -hmm. traditional leadership and so on and so forth. So I think that it is important to look at South Sudan as an invitation to see a possible new world emerging mm -hmm. that is respectful of the differences that it took humans millennia to create mm -hmm. linguistic differences, ethnic differences, territorial differences, cultural differences, and so on, but bring them together politically in constructs that are actually stable, that are actually capable of self-correction, that are actually able to be accountable to sure. the very population that is um, serving and so on and so forth. So I think that Sant'Egidio is um, extremely excited about the South Sudan process because there is no solution in South Sudan unless the South Sudanese themselves are really engaged in this. Mm -hmm. And now that the leadership is finally listening to what the society has been saying all mm -hmm. along mm -hmm. through the churches and not, not only, but it, it, there is a, a moment of possibility, a window of opportunity to link society and state in a way that was simply not possible before. I have so many follow-up questions, but so one is, it seems to me that your sense is that the success of the European Union, the success of the United States relative to other places in the world is in some ways a model for these new pluralist societies that are trying to find their way out of violence and trying to find a more sustainable you know, governmental and democratic process or, or process. Um, but at the same time, the challenges that are happening in the U.S. and the challenges that are happening in the EU in terms of unity um, are considerable and concerning. Do you think that has a ripple effect, a negative effect on, on these nations who in some ways are attempting to create their own or emulate, you know, to some degree emulate, but also create their own future? My hope is that in a way South Sudan will do better <laughs> and that, that, that we will learn. And I, yeah. and I think that um, um, I really need, I, I really think that we need to move away from a colonial and post-colonial mindset. Uh -huh. I really think that we need to welcome each other into this 
humanity framework uh -huh. where we are one, mm -hmm. we are in one planet, mm -hmm. and we have, we have so the, the unit of analysis is just the Earth. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And thank, uh, fortunately, uh, biology keeps teaching us that lesson. The coronavirus is is a global pandemic. Exactly. Right? And, and, and it There's really no doesn't. It, it, and borders. Borders, doesn't, exactly. Yeah. Ma ma makes makes little difference, you yeah. know, and, and so on. So I really feel that that awareness is very important. Yeah. The other awareness that I think is important is that, of course, you have the American experiment, you have the European experiment, and so on, but you have hundreds, thousands of other experiments yeah. uh, that we need to pay attention to. And yeah. uh, I know that uh, your scholarship led you to study peaceful societies. Yeah. Well, we have some cases of peaceful states. Yeah. And the link between peaceful states and peaceful societies is very interesting. Yeah. So we are becoming more aware that actually peacefulness is an expression of responsibility. Yeah. And it's an expression of responsibility, not only in the direction of your own predicament and result, but also in terms of care for the whole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much am I contributing to this larger system that we call the herd? Sure. And so in that sense, my hope is that we will be surprised by what we see in South Sudan, uh -huh. by what we see in Afghanistan, by uh -huh. what we see yeah. in Colombia, and mm -hmm. that is to say, if we seriously take into consideration the possibility that human can learn anytime, anywhere, all the time, yeah. we can unleash energies for peaceful solutions and peaceful systems to emerge yeah. in situations where actually you had very bloody, difficult, you know, violent situation sure. before. Yeah. And you can even make the argument that exactly those who went through very difficult circumstances yeah. may develop the antibodies sure. you know, that will allow them yeah. not to repeat those mistakes. You know, in this sense, for example, the, the transformation of Scandinavia is right. very interesting. You know, what happened to Scandinavia? Yeah. You know, they were clearly very violent. They were right. conquering the world. They were right. traveling all over. And something happened that and transformed entire societies and their states and their commitments and their in a different direction. Yeah. So I think that we need to start really studying each other yeah. and this link between society and state. And these carefully. turning points, yeah. 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 Because you're right. I think that that's one of the things that many, so we study peaceful societies, peaceful states, and peaceful, what we call peace systems, which are regions of, of states that are peaceful or communities that are peaceful in relation to each other. And Scandinavia is one of them. Um, and Mauritius is another. And, and many of these, like Costa Rica, have a story of a turning point of a of a you know of a civil war that was terribly bloody and from that there were bold decisions right to you know disband the military and invest in healthcare and education and and really peace education and committing to sort of growing more peaceable uh, citizens so there are these oftentimes stories of these dramatic ruptures certainly sudan has gone through the suffering uh, uh, Sudan and South Sudan of the suffering of the of war, but then there are also these moments of possibility, such as perhaps Francis, Pope Francis, in his symbolic way, in his his gesture, um, might have triggered something that has a life of its own, right? Is its own sort of virtuous cycle. That that's exactly the point. I think that that peace has a life of its own. Yeah. 
that, that actually we should more carefully, in many ways like life, Life has life of its own. Life, yeah. life is clearly alive and that we need to be careful not to tinker with. We, don't, we need to be careful not to um, overrule, over, or impose sure. you know, on life because life is very fragile sure. and can easily be dismissed and can easily be lost. Yeah. Um, but there is no doubt that peace as life has a, has a life of its own. Sure, yeah. That's a, a, a beautiful comment to end on. Should we, we probably should wrap this up, but I want to, Andrea, it's always an honor and pleasure to talk to you about your experience, your insight. Um, you are such, you're, in some ways, you're a poet in, through your experience, able to sort of share and envision and describe moments, events, relationships, um, and possibilities, to sort of see possibilities. So it's always a pleasure to have these conversations. Um, this is a uh, this is one. Let's have many more. Thank you. Conversations from the Leading Edge is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. This episode was recorded at the WKCR studios. I am Peter T. Coleman, your host and the executive director at AC4. Rachel Kirk is our communications supervisor, and Mare Casalato is our producer. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnson. That's all for today's show. See you next time. <laughs>